Allow me to ask you a question. If you could commission an artist to paint or maybe just draw for you any scene from scripture, what scene would you commission and why? Now, I'm just going to tell you, I've really thought about this question so often. My problem is there's just a lot of scenes that come to mind. I've always thought, you know, I'd love to have a painting done of the Mishpat, the judge, Samson. You know, for me, he represents, you know, what does it mean to be fully dedicated to God? He was a Nazarene. Uh, you know, I, th I think about this. While most dedicated vows of the Nazarenes were for a small period of one's life, Samson at birth was dedicated for the entirety of his. He lived for God, yet he also represents what it means still under a vow to fall, to fall into the trap of the enemy. And I think this sounds strange, but I believe that one of the things that makes Samson so relatable is the fact that he's, he's not just a cartoon character or a superhero. He's flawed, and we relate to his humanity and to what it means to live under the consequence of failure. Then I think about his restoration, and I love the prayer of Samson, Lord, if it be thy will, return my strength even for this moment, that in death your victory might be made known. And yeah, I think there's a prophetic character to Samson's last moments on earth, this moment where he stands tied to the supportive columns of a pagan temple and cries out with all of his might as he pulls against the restraints. You can feel the moment. Every, every part of me just tingles inside when I think of God returning Samson's strength. I would love to just capture or to see a, a painter or an artist capture the horror in the enemy's eyes when they realize what is happening and it's too late. And somehow, if, if it could be done, it would be so cool just to capture in a painting that connection between the cross, Jesus's victory, in death, in God's victory in death through Samson. That's a painting I, I would commission uh, many times over. E even as I would a drawing or a painting of Jonah. Um, I don't know if there's a specific scene in his life that, that you would capture, but for me, it's that moment when he has pulled himself up off of the shore, having been spit out by the great fish, only to turn to God and finally relent, finally submit. How many times, I sometimes wonder, will I stand before God resistant? How many times will I push away from his will, only to be mercifully spit out, given a second or a third or, or a thousand or ten thousand chance to die to self and to be born into his will? How would you capture the expression on Jonah's face in that moment? I really, I would pay to have that picture drawn. And then, then there is the picture that I actually did commission, my, my number one of all time. It's a picture, you're going to have to trust me, this really works, of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But instead of riding horses, the riders are mounted, are you ready for this, on Harley Davidson's. And I'm, I'm just telling you, the picture turned out to be so good. I know this is a verbal venue and it's hard to do justice to a picture, but give me a chance to try. I'm going to, I'm going to try to describe the picture to you. So front and center, you see a Harley with a jet black rider. And if you look carefully at the rider's hands, you see a scale. To the rider's left, 
as you face the picture is a rider holding a sickle. The Harley seeks to harvest the earth. Immediately behind him, a rider holding a sword in hand, and behind him, one that looks like a sickly skull. And finally, behind the Harley is a train of riders, riders by the thousands, all representative of those spiritual forces or demons who mean to bring harm to the earth. So why in the world, Luke, did you commission such a scene? Well, let me, let me give you a couple of reasons. First, I've always been intrigued by the images revealed by God to us through John in the Revelation. By far and away, this book is my favorite book of the Bible, and for good reason. It's, it's so relevant for our time. I can't think of a more relevant word for the church today. Secondly, there, there's this scene from the book, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And I, and I think that over the years, some pretty famous artists have tried to capture what's happening in this part of the Revelation. I think about Albrecht Dürer's famous woodcut depicting the scene of the four horsemen. Carved in wood in 1498, Dürer captures that haunting movement of the horsemen as they trample over those residing on earth with a sole angel flying above them, as if to say that even this work of Satan is done under the authority of Jesus Christ. Then, if you remember this one, there's the work of Russian artist Viktor Vesnetsov, who in 1887 likewise captured this scene, his horses trampling the ruling class of Rome. Yet no artist's work compares, I don't believe, with what we're witnessing in these very times in which we live. What I appreciate so much about the ninth verse of Daniel 12, where we find ourselves today. On today's episode of God's Side of Living, I want to think about the connection between Daniel's words written long ago and the events that we see around us in our world today. And I want to ask two questions. Question one, what, what words does Daniel use that connect this prophecy with what we are observing in our world today? Number two, in what ways does the writing of the four horses inform our understanding of what God is seeking to accomplish through them? I want to try to tie these two things together. I believe there's a very strong connection between this last part of, of the book of Daniel and what we see at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Now, I, I want to tell you one of the things that did get me thinking a little bit about our topic is a book that I read a couple of years ago titled The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Religion, War, Famine, and Death in Reformation Europe. The book's kind of a scholarly book. It's written by two authors, Andrew Cunningham and Ole Peter Grell. And if you, if you allow, I'll just contextualize the book for you. So, so think of it this way with me. In the world of theology, there are essentially four approaches, different approaches, taken towards interpreting the words and the images found in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these, but I want you to follow. The first approach is the approach of the futurists. And as the name implies, futurists look at the words of Revelation as something descriptive of actions and events yet to take place. The suggestion is made that a single global event will precipitate the majority of the action described by John, and that event is referred to as the rapture. According to this view, there will come a moment in history 
wherein all individuals who have accepted Jesus as Savior and who are alive on planet Earth, together with infants, children, and those yet to be born, all of whom are considered to be protected under God's providential care, will be raptured off of the Earth in an instant prior to the beginning of the actions and events described in the Revelation. The events of the Revelation, then, are primarily descriptive of that which will occur in the future at a term time to be determined by God. This view holds that the events of Revelation describe God's effort to give those who have rejected him a second chance to accept him as Savior prior to the end of time. That's approach number one. Approach number two, almost the opposite of that, is the approach of the preterists. Now, as this name implies, preterists take an approach to Revelation that stands in opposition to the futurists. This group approaches the actions and events of Revelation as having already been completed. They're, they're done. I would submit that as you look at the picture I referred to a moment ago, the one drawn by Russian artist Viktor Vesnetsov, you can visualize the preterist's interpretation. If you look carefully at the painting, you'll notice there are no signs of modernity. All of the individuals painted by Vesnetsov are from the Roman era, and for reason. That's how preterists read the book, as actions that have already taken place. That's view number two. View number three, or approach number three, is the approach of the symbolists. Spoiler alert, I'm just going to tell you that this is the camp that I personally fall into. Symbolists read Revelation through the lens of what the book calls itself. Think of it this way, when John, the author, begins the book with the word apocalypsis, he's using a literary term. That is, he's utilizing a well-known term which identifies the literature as that which utilizes symbols which represent external realities. That's what an apocalypsis is. It's a genre, a literary form. Allow me to say it this way. When John begins the book, it's almost as if he were shouting at the reader. Reader, I'm going to give you a series of symbols to look at. Each is representative of real persons and real events that span a significant length of time. So take them in and seek to discern through the Spirit who and what they represent. This is how a symbolist reads the Revelation. We look at the symbols and we seek with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to discern the who and what is being referred to, beginning with the time frame in which the words were given, the first century, and leading all the way up to this current day, even as we know they point us beyond today and into the future. This said, the symbolist will ask the question, who and what have these four horses been going back to the first century and who and what are they today? As far as the future is concerned, what can be known is that until Jesus returns, the horses will take the form of who's and what's to come. Then there's one last way in which revelation can be understood. I call the fourth approach, the political or issue-oriented approach. Well, personally, I, I do not find this approach to be legitimate. I'll point out to you that some interpreters, particularly within our modern time, will do this. They will borrow the words of the Revelation as a way of highlighting 
what they see as a modern political issue. I'm going to give you an example. In 2017, authors Dick Russell, Robert Kennedy Jr., and David Talbot wrote a book titled Horsemen of the Apocalypse, semicolon, The Men Who Are Destroying Life on Earth and What It Means for Our Children. Now, the design of this book is to address the issue of global warming and to do so by borrowing the language of Revelation. In the end, it's the intent of their book to criticize a group of individuals, most of whom belong to a particular political persuasion, regarding their, the politicians' rejection of much of the science behind global warming. While I certainly welcome the debate that probably should take place within the the global family regarding how science might best inform the practices that we as mankind have toward respecting God's creation, this conversation is certainly not the central intent of the book of Revelation. To read the book through this lens is to miss the message that it intends to bring. That said, I'm certainly aware that people do this all the time. Now, with these approaches in mind, let me come back to the book previously mentioned, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, Religion, War, Famine, and Death in Reformation Europe. In this book, authors Cunningham and Grell explore the world from 1490 to 1648. That's their frame. They explore it through a symbolist's lens. In other words, they're asking the question, how were the four horses that are described in the book of Revelation riding during this particular time period? And they investigate. They turn over the rocks of science and medicine and history at that time. And, and I have to say that their insights are valuable. They're a great contribution because they raise the question. If this is how the four horses were riding in the 1400s, all the way through the early 1600s, how are they riding today? This, I must say, has to be the intent of Jesus as he speaks to Daniel in chapter 12. I want to return there, return to chapter 12 and remember what's happening. Remember with me that we're at the end of Daniel's life. He's served the Lord well. While he will die before seeing his people fully return to Israel, God has allowed him to live long enough to watch the overthrow of Babylon at the hands of Persia and, more importantly, to witness Cyrus's decree, a decree that would allow all of Israel to return to Jerusalem to go back home. Now, what God is doing in my mind is significant. While Daniel's mind is caught up in the here and now, Lord, will Israel ever return home? home being Jerusalem. What God wants him to see is there is something grander and greater. There's another return home that God wants Daniel to see, namely the return to our new home, our, our home on new earth. That's the return, Daniel. That's most important. What we've seen God doing then in chapter 12 is giving to Daniel a vision, a revelation, pointing to the end time. We've walked through most of this vision in our last several podcasts. Now we come back to chapter 12, verse 4. And I want you to hear these words because I want to make a connection between Daniel and the Revelation. So as Jesus completes his words to Daniel, I want you to hear again what he says to him. This is verse 4. Lord, we pray for your direction even as we read these words. Quote, But you, Daniel, 
shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, I don't know how you hear these words, but all kinds of thoughts course through me when I hear them. Part of me wants to shout on Daniel's behalf, shut the words up, seal them. Why in the world would we want to do that, Lord? Are these not things that we want the world to, to know and to hear? Another part of me wants to ask the question again on behalf of Daniel, why, Lord, would you show me all these things if, if you just want to shut them up? What has been your purpose in showing these things to me? And then the greatest part of me wants to ask the question, so when will these words, the, the fullness of what Jesus has shown to Daniel, become unsealed, or, or have they been already? And this is the question that I think we should be asking today. Let me tell you why. Uh, because they have been. I'm, I'm telling you, they have been unsealed. The words that Daniel heard from Jesus so many years ago have been unsealed. In fact, today, we have Daniel's vision more fully than anyone did or could have had in his time. So where is his vision more fully expressed, you asked? And of course, the answer is simple in the book of Revelation. So allow me to show this to you. What I want to do is set two scriptures side by side so that you can see this. I'll start by rereading Daniel's words in 12.4. Then I'm going to jump over to Revelation 5, where I think you'll get the connection. Okay, ready. Here we go. Let me reread the words of Jesus to Daniel. Chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Okay, you have that. Now, allow me to turn to Revelation chapter 5. I want you to see the connection. In chapter 5, we meet John who comes years after Daniel. Daniel's story concludes in 537 BC. John's takes place around 90 AD. So there's a 600 year gap that goes on here. Now, like Daniel, God has swept John up into an ecstasy and has given him a vision that will describe what he, God, will do from the first century all the way up until his return. In chapter 5 of Revelation, we stand at the beginning of this vision and we hear the words. Listen for the connection to Daniel. John is watching the angels of God's Sabbath army come around the throne of, of God in heaven. Here are the words that are used to describe what he sees. Quote, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. I'm going to stop there for a moment. Can you hear the connection between Daniel 12 and Revelation 5? Daniel 12, Daniel, take the scroll that you have recorded this vision on and seal it up until the end times begin. Revelation 5. John, the end times have now begun. It's time to open up the seals. This, in fact, is the very question that John asks. Revelation 5, he asks, Who, O Lord, is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Of course, the answer is there's only one. There's only one worthy to open the seal, the seal that's remained 
locked in place 600 years as Daniel died with the scroll containing the vision that God had given him in its fullness sealed tightly with seven seals and that one is Jesus himself. See the connection? And so it happens. Pop! The first seal is opened and what occurs? Since we've been talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you can probably guess. Yep, the four horses ride. Listen to the words. Revelation 5. Quote, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So let me ask you this question. Who and what are these horses? If the symbolist's interpretation of Revelation is correct, then each of these represents actual individuals and events that have been a part of each epoch of history dating all the way back to and including the first century. That said, maybe our question should be, well, who and what are they today? In our next episode of God's Eyes Living, I want to get into each of these with a little bit of detail. I find it fascinating that an Old Testament book like Daniel and the vision which he prophetically received holds, now opened, so much relevance for our times today. I believe these words do. I want to get into, at least at some level, some of the ways that I know we are experiencing the writing of the four horsemen in our world today. In fact, that is, I believe, the intention of the words given to Daniel. They were given and sealed for such a time as that which we're living in. With the advent of Jesus, the seal upon Daniel's skull is broken, and now, some 2,600 plus years later, we not only hear the horses riding, but if we pay attention, we might discover that they are riding at full gallop. So, why is Jesus giving us these words? I believe to make us aware of the way in which he's working in our world today, with the intention of calling each of us who make up what we call true spiritual Israel, the followers of Jesus, to join him in mission, even as we go closer to our new home on Redeemed or New Earth. We'll get into this in our next episode. Until then, I, I want to close with a sequence of questions that attach to the words that we've looked at today. So here we go. Question one, I want you to think of a time when you had to be distant from your home for more than a couple of days, a time when you began to miss your home, actually long for it. Here's the question. What did you long for most? If you had to be away from your home for a long period of time, what, what did you most miss? In this section of Daniel, the old prophet 
Daniel himself finds himself longing for the hometown of Jerusalem. And the Jewish slaves taken captured by Babylon, they've all been away from home for a long time. He's hungry for his people to go home. Question number two. In what way is God more hungry for the return of Israel to their true home? Not a place, but a way of life under the covenant. What's God's hope for his people? Additionally, how does the language that Jesus uses with Daniel in chapter 12 point toward an even greater home that God is calling us to, namely our final home, New Earth? One more. Really, do think about this one. Do you ever find yourself thinking about what life on New Earth will be? What will it be like? What are you most hungry for as you think about New Earth? The seals have been broken. The four horses are riding. May we watch and pray. Well, that's all for this week. I want to thank you again for listening. Uh, can continue to keep you in my prayers. Please uh, lift me up in yours as well. And until then, have a God-sized week. <music>